The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, good evening. It's great to be back with you guys. It feels like it's been a while. All right, Joshua chapter 11. And I am super excited about what the Lord has put on my heart to share with you this evening. Joshua chapter 11. Sean did such a great job last week in his Sun Stand Still message. And uh, I believe the Lord has some more incredible things that he wants to share with us this evening through his word. And I just want to start by reminding all of us of the incredible potential that there is in this moment as we've just kind of made our way into the Lord's presence through worship. We're now at the throne room of grace. And there, there is mercy and grace to help in times of need. There is the potential for healing in this moment. There is the potential for breakthrough in this moment. There is the potential for transformation to occur in this moment. And so I'm excited because God is here. He's on the move. He's doing incredible things. And I just can't wait to see what he wants to do with us tonight. So the title of my message tonight is Wholehearted Devotion. Wholehearted Devotion. And I'll, I'll set things up like this. I want to bring you up to speed on where things stand in our study in the book of Joshua. At this point, the Israelites have more or less successfully conquered the majority of the kingdoms in the southern region of the Promised Land. With their most recent victory over the Gibeonites, that's what Sean looked at last week, being their most impressive one yet. So they were essentially, for all practical intents and purposes, at the halfway point of reaching their goal. The entire northern region still needed to be captured. But even making it this far was an impressive feat in and of itself. But as most of us know, the halfway point is a pivotal moment in the undertaking of any project, right? A, a project is never more in danger of falling apart than it is at the halfway point. Games are won or lost in the second half, the coaches say. And, and probably all of us have at least one, probably a number of half-completed projects at home sitting there waiting for us to finish them. And so that's where the Israelites were at. They'd come a long way, but there was still long, a long way to go. And so the question remained, would they finish the task at hand? Would they conquer the whole land? Or would they settle for something less? And that's where chapter 11 comes in. Let's go ahead and begin reading there in verse 1. It says, when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, that is, the, the victory of the Israelites over the Gibeonites. He sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Akshaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, and the Arabah south of the Kinnereth in the western foothills, and in Naphoth, Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mitzpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. 
All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. So these verses help to set the stage for where we're going to be heading with the rest of our time together. And, and, and what we discover is this, this chapter, it takes on um, kind of a, a similar tone as the previous one. For those of you who were here last week, you know that this is kind of like a carbon copy of what we read about happening in verse, the first few verses of chapter 10. In both chapters, you have a conglomeration of kings coming together, forming an alliance to come and attack their enemy, Israel, their common enemy. The only difference is, in chapter 10, it was five kings coming together, and this time, it's 10. So the army is twice as big, and it would appear as though they're better equipped to fight as well. Verse 4 tells us about it. It says they have troops, and they have horses, and they have chariots. Now, horses and chariots in the ancient world were like our Humvees and tanks. These things gave the enemy a decided advantage in, on the battlefield against Israel. The end of verse 4 rounds out the picture for us by telling us that the armory was so big and so vast that according to the author, it seemed like it was so innumerable. It was like the sands that cover the seashore. Other translations describe this enemy army as a vast horde. And all these kings, we are told, and all these forces made camp together to fight against Israel. And that leads to the first point of application that I want to cover with you this evening. And that is that the Christian life is a battlefield. Duh, right? If you haven't learned that yet, then that only means you've been a Christian for like two minutes. Because hopefully by now you've realized that the Christian life is not all rainbows and butterflies. It's not a walk in the park. It's a war zone. In Israel's case, they were confronted by a physical enemy. For us, more often than not, it's, it's a spiritual one. For them, they were facing chariots and horses and troops. For us, the battles are in our minds. They're with our emotions and our wills. Who will we submit to? But the point is, regardless of the form the attack takes, our adversary is just as relentless today as he was back then. One day, it might be five things on your plate that you're having to deal with. You ever have one of those days where you just wake up and it's like a five alarm fire and you're putting out this fire and then you're running over here and you're dealing with this and then that happens. And then the next day, it's not just five things, but it's 10 things on your plate. And this, friends, is why it's absolutely essential that we develop the discipline of beginning each day by spending time in the presence of the captain of our salvation. That's one of the names for Jesus in the Bible. He is our commander in chief. And it's as we spend time in his presence that we receive our marching orders for the day. You might call this a quiet time or a devotional time, or this is just that time, the first part of your day. I think it's absolutely essential. I have built this discipline into my life, and it is by far and away the most important part of my day. It's that first thing that I do in the morning when I wake up and I open my YouVersion Bible app and I read the word and I spend time in prayer. And in doing that, not only am I receiving God's marching orders for the battles that I'm going to face today, but in addition to that, in a spiritual sense, it's like I'm putting on the armor of God. 
I'm putting on the helmet of salvation and taking upon me the shield of faith and putting on the breastplate of righteousness and I'm girding myself with the sword of the spirit, wrapping my feet in the preparation of the gospel. It's, it's a way of getting ready for the warfare that I'm inevitably going to face that day. You see, the problem with so many Christians today is they haven't developed that discipline, and that's why they keep getting taken down by the enemy. They give lip service to Jesus, but in their practical daily lives, they don't even realize that they're in a battle. Just try to picture for a moment, if you will, someone just kind of like lazily kind of sleepwalking their way through the middle of a battlefield. Bullets are whizzing past their head. Tanks and Humvees are going down either side of them, and they're just kind of listlessly kind of wandering through the battlefield. That's what a lot of Christians are like. If you're not in the word, if you're not spending time with the Lord, then you're not getting the proper protection or understanding that you need for the wars that you're going to face. So that's the first point. It's an obvious one. The Christian life is a battlefield. Now let's move on to the second point. The second point is found in verse 6, where it says, the Lord said to Joshua, where did the Lord say to Joshua? He said this to him in his quiet time as he was spending time with the Lord, seeking the Lord's counsel and advice. Then he was able to hear the, the, the counsel of the Lord. Verse 6, do not be afraid of them, Josh, because by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them slain over to Israel, and you are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Point number one, the Christian life is a battle. Number two, the second point is the battle belongs to the Lord. Somebody say amen to that. Now, this is, again, something that we know. But it's, it's something that we need to drive down deep into the bedrock of our souls. We need to know in our heart of hearts that the battle belongs to the Lord. It was the psalmist who penned these words, and this is Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. You see, the, the enemy might have greater numbers. They might have superior weapons. They might have every military advantage. But Joshua had something that they didn't have, and that is that he had the Lord on his side. They had horses, but Joshua had a promise from God. And who needs an army when you have the Lord? Amen? Like, there's this really crazy story in Isaiah where in a single night, one angel, just one angel, takes out 186,000 soldiers in the enemy's camp. Now, that is what you call, my friends, a beatdown. And that's just one angel. Now, think about what the Lord could do. And Josh knows that he has the Lord on his side. To quote another psalm, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then, I will be confident. That's Psalm 27, verse 3. So let's personalize this. Did you know that you too have the assurance of victory in the battles you face? You have a promise from the Lord that you will be victorious. And you don't just have one promise. The Bible is filled with more than 7,000 promises from God. And every one of them is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. All we have to do is claim those promises. 
Perhaps this evening you feel like the enemy has you backed into a corner. Well, you need to take hold of the promise that says, no weapon that's formed against me shall prosper. Then again, perhaps you feel like you're stuck and there's no way out. Claim the promise that says, where there is no way, he'll make a way. He makes streams in the desert. Perhaps you feel stuck. Claim the promise that says, his strength is perfected in my weaknesses. Perhaps you feel like you're running out of hope. Amen. 2020, it sapped a lot of hope, didn't it? Well, you need to be reminded of what the Bible says at the end of this book, where it tells us that all of the armies of this world are going to array themselves against our king in his return. But he's triumphant, and a sword issues forth from his mouth and takes out all of the enemies. We win, in other words. So are you starting to see how the key in every battle is claiming the promises of God? Now, here's the obvious other part to that. You can only claim the promises that you know about, right? Like That's a pretty obvious point. But it's worth bringing up. You can't claim promises that you don't know are there. If you don't even know it's there, then how are you supposed to claim it? And this, again, is why it's so important that we read and study and meditate on the word of God. Some of you are living defeated lives, and it's all because you haven't taken the time to just familiarize yourself with the promises of God. You've got to read the word, meditate on the word. It's got to be the diet that your whole life wraps itself around. So that's the first part. You've got to spend time in the word and with the Lord so that you know his word and his promises. But there's another part that's even more important. And you know that stuff that we've talked about so far. But this next part is super vital. And it's something that I think think a lot of Christians miss. We see it in verses 7 through 15. So let's go ahead and read it. It says, So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Miram and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Misrephoth, Maim into the valley of Mitzpah on the east until no survivors were left. Sounds like some places out of the Mandalorian, doesn't it? Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. And he burned Hazor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings, and he put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, But all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. Here's a a real key verse, verse 15. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Now, I love this part of this story. It's, It's super rich. 
Joshua is so confident in the promise that God gives to him that he doesn't wait for the enemy to attack him. He doesn't uh, adopt a defensive posture, but rather he goes on the offensive with his men and he takes the fight to his enemies and he opens up a can on them and he just whoops them. And there's something to note there for us as believers. You see, I find that oftentimes it feels like the church, I'm talking about the church as a whole, the global church, we, def- we kind of adopt this defensive posture and we're hunkered down and we're, we're just doing everything we can to just hold on to the territory that we've got. But I don't know that that's what Jesus wants for us. You see, I believe God is calling his church to get up our butts and to go on the offensive and take the fight to the enemy. That's what Jesus had in mind when he said to his disciples, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't be able to withstand it. He was picturing his warriors for the faith, taking the fight to the devil and just working him. You see, gates don't advance. They don't push forward. Gates are there as defensive measures. And so the church is storming the gates of hell and saving sinners and bringing them into the kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're called to do that. And that's what Joshua did. He took the fight to his enemies. And in doing that, Joshua teaches us the next super important lesson. And and this is about the promises of God. And here's what it is. The way that we activate the promises of God in our lives is by stepping out in obedience and acting on what God has said in his word. Now, there's a lot there for us to unpack. So let's just kind of break that down. The way that we activate God's promises. Step one is knowing the promises, memorizing them, meditating on them. But step two is releasing their power in our lives and activating them. So how do you do that? Will you step out in obedience and act on what God has said? Again, to quote the Psalms, and I know I'm quoting the Psalms a lot tonight, but it says this, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to thy word. It is the heeding of God's word and not merely the hearing of the word that unleashes its power in our lives. This is so important. Listen, I don't care how many Bible verses you have memorized. I don't care how many church services you've attended in the last week. It's not enough to know it. You've got to activate it in your life. And I want to illustrate the point because I really want to drive this thought home. Imagine that you have this friend and this friend is really nice and really rich. And one day this really nice friend, this really rich friend, decides to buy you a Lamborghini Gallardo. If you want to be my friend and you have a Lamborghini Gallardo, I welcome that. You can do this with me. So this friend gifts you this incredible car and they leave it on your driveway. Now, that is a powerful, powerful vehicle. I did a little reading about it this afternoon. It's got like 562 horsepower. It goes zero to 60 in like a tick over three seconds. And the thing is just a beast. It's got this V12 engine. It it can do some damage. But that car, as powerful as it is, if your friend forgets to give you the keys, that car is nothing more than a really pretty paperweight. It can't get you anywhere. It won't take you anywhere. It can't do anything. Its power can only be unleashed with the key, right? Well, in the same way, in the Christian life, faith 
friends, faith is the key that unlocks the power of God's promises in our lives. And what does faith look like in the life of a believer? Here's what it is. Faith looks like obedience. Faith is the key that opens up that V12 engine and unleashes its unimaginable power in our life. And here's what faith looks like. Faith looks like obedience. It's simple and it's straightforward. Perhaps you were hoping for something a little more edgy, a little more flashy, a little more exciting, but I'm afraid that's what I've got for you. You see, I've met a lot of Christians out there who are ready and lined up and willing to go out and do the great and exciting things for the Lord. God, I'll cross an ocean for you. And God says, that's great, but are you willing to cross the street first and just share the gospel with your neighbor? You see, God has no problem finding people who are willing to do great exploits of faith for him. But what if that's not what he's necessarily looking for? What if he's just looking for somebody who's willing to do the obedient thing? It, it was Mother Teresa who said it like this. She said, not everyone can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. I like that. Do you want to please the Lord? Then just obey him and you'll activate his blessings in your life. That's what a life full of faith looks like. It looks like a life full of obedience. And Joshua, again, gives us a wonderful illustration of that kind of wholehearted devotion. In verse 9, it says, Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. In verse 12, it says, he totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. And in verse 15, it says, all the things that the Lord commanded Moses, Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. Just do it, says Nike. That was Joshua's slogan. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. I love that phrase. He left nothing undone. Obedience to God's word doesn't get much more complete than that, does it? And here's where we need to internalize this and personalize it and ask ourselves, could that same sentence be written over our lives? Could it be said of you, they left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded them? You see, I want to be able to say that, but I've got to be honest with you guys. I've fallen under the conviction of the Holy Spirit big time on this one. And I feel like more times than I care to admit to you, I find myself trying to get away with doing most of what the Lord commands me to do, or some of what the Lord commands me to do. And I give the Lord half of my heart, but then half of my heart is still over here doing its own thing. And I think one of the key takeaways from this story is that God wants us to give him wholehearted devotion. You see, I've got four kids, and you know how it is if you're a teenager or just a kid in general, your parents ask you to do something, and you try to skate by with doing just as much as you can that where you're technically doing what they've asked you to do, but you're not really doing it with wholehearted devotion. What's the least I can get by with? And still say I did it. And I think, like, as believers, we're a lot like spiritual teenagers in that way. What's the least I can get away with, God? And God hates it when we do that with him. Listen, half-hearted obedience is the same thing as total disobedience. And what God is looking for is wholehearted devotion. 
And that's what Joshua demonstrates. If you want to experience the blessings of the Lord in your life, then I would encourage you to follow his example. Like Joshua, don't leave anything undone. I should also point out that obeying the Lord wholeheartedly also often means doing, well, what might be considered things that are not easily understood or maybe things that you don't even like. You see, Joshua's obedience again illustrates that. One of the things that God told Joshua to do once he had handed the enemy into his hands, he said, I want you to take all the horses and hamstring them. I'll explain what that means in a moment. Then he says, I want you to take all the chariots and I want you to burn them. To hamstring a horse so you did something with its tendons so that it wasn't fit for the battlefield. It couldn't run anymore. A horse that had been hamstrung, all it was good for was plowing in the fields or carrying a load. Rendered it ineffective for the, the war zone. Similarly, once you burned the chariots, I think that's a pretty obvious point. You can't use them anymore. So why would God ask Joshua to do something like that, right? I mean, from a practical standpoint, it makes absolutely zero sense. And yet Joshua obeyed the Lord. And here's what I think was going on. I think God said, Joshua, I want you to do these things because if you were to take those things with you and bring them with you into your next battle, I know how the human heart works. And you would say, oh, it was these new horses. All my new horsepower that delivered the victory to us. Or it was these chariots having these tanks. That's what brought the victory. And God wanted his people to rely solely on him. So he said, don't even, don't even mess with that stuff. Just get rid of it. It will ensure that you have no other choice but to trust me. And Joshua obeyed the Lord, even though it didn't make sense, even though I'm sure when he handed that instruction on to his commanding officers, they looked at him with puzzled, furrowed brows and quizzical gazes like, are you serious, Joshua? God gave us this stuff. Why would we do that? And Joshua went back to the Lord. No, I heard from the Lord. This is what we're supposed to do. And you need to know, as a believer, there will be times when God asks you to do things that won't make sense to you, let alone everyone else. And that's the time of testing. Are you going to do the obedient thing when it's not the prudent thing, when it's not the practical thing, when it doesn't make any sense? See, Jesus said it like this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It really is that simple. Notice this, our love for the Lord, it's not measured by the intensity of our worship or the consistency of our church attendance or the fervency of our prayers. No, it's measured by one thing and one thing only. It's measured by the totality of our obedience. Let me say it again. Our love for the Lord isn't going to be measured by the, the intensity of our worship or the consistency of our church attendance or the fervency of our prayers. It's measured by the totality of our obedience. The point is as obvious as it is simple. Obedience, it's the key that faith turns in the ignition and unlocks all the power and blessing of God in our lives. Now let's finish up our story and I'll show you how God's blessings followed Joshua because of his wholehearted devotion. It says in verse 16, so Joshua took the entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, and the mountains of Israel with their foothills. From Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon, he captured all their kings and put them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. 
Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. And at that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So these verses kind of sum up what God accomplished for his people. They took out all the northern kingdoms. They took all the land, captured all their kings, and put them all to death. And they took them all in battle. Now, this didn't happen overnight. Verse 18 points out that it took a long time. They were at war for a long time. Later on, we're going to learn that this one verse or this one story encapsulates a period of about five to seven years. And there's a lesson even in that, isn't there? God assures us of victory, but that, that victory isn't easily won or quick in coming. Man, I wish that spiritual maturity could be expedited. I wish that there were like an easy button for life that we could wake up tomorrow and we would just be spiritually mature. But growth and maturity are two things that just take time. And there are going to be a lot of battles that we have to fight along the way. But one thing is sure, and that is that we have the assurance of ultimate victory. We will get there because he who promised us is faithful. Amen. And every promise is yes and amen. And the good work that he began in you, he will complete according to Philippians 1.6. So it'll take some time. There'll be some battles. But you're, you'll get there. You'll take out all the giants in your land just like the Israelites did. I love how verse 22 just kind of casually drops how he took out all the Anakites. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know that these are the same people that 40 years previously, the Israelite spies had gone in and they'd seen the Anakites. They were a descendant of this race of giants. And they, they came back and they gave the evil report saying, we can't take the Anakites. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. And here, finally, 40 years later, a new generation has arisen. And they find that the Anakites are no match for the word of the Lord. Verse 23, we'll end with this. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. And then the land had rest from war. He took the entire land, praise the Lord. And he gave it out as an inheritance. This is a new word that is getting introduced into the story of Joshua. Up to this point, the, the language that is dominated, the, the storyline has been words like take them over or conquest or conquer. And now the language shifts. And this is like a hinge. And the rest of the story is going to become about divvying out the people's inheritance. This one word, inheritance, it shows up 50 more times in the second half of the book of Joshua. And I just want to remind you that as believers here tonight, you too have an inheritance from the Lord. Listen to what Peter says about your inheritance. This is 1 Peter 1.4. It says, we have been born again. If you're a believer in Jesus, you've been born again into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for us. It's being reserved for us. The, the inheritances that we receive here on earth, 
They spoil. They're subject to decay. Everything is subject to the law of entropy. That is, everything is fading away. You leave an apple core out, and the next day it's rotted and brown and disgusting looking. That's entropy at work. And, and everything on earth is subject to that law. But the inheritance for the believer is one that never perishes, spoils, or fades. It's flawless. It's perfect. Even the most perfect things here on earth have their flaws. Look at any diamond. I don't care how perfect it is. The most beautiful diamonds, the hope diamond. You can look at that diamond under a microscope, and you'll find all kinds of cracks and flaws. But our spiritual inheritance is unfading. And lastly, Peter tells us that our inheritance in Christ is reserved. It's being kept for us, which I love that. You know, when you go to a restaurant, you, do, you make, well, in the, the good old days when you went to a restaurant, you called ahead and you would make a reservation so that when you get there, your table is waiting for you, hopefully. Well, we have a reservation in heaven. If you place your faith in Jesus, then your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. And when you make your way to heaven, after you've taken your last breath on earth and you open your eyes to you, your internal inheritance in heaven, you'll hear the words of your heavenly Father say, enter into the joy that's been prepared for you by my Father and the angels in heaven. This is what awaits us. God and man will dwell together. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. The bejeweled city, New Jerusalem, will be our home. A river of life will issue forth from the very throne room of God. The healing tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit will grow on its banks, where you can just pick the fruit and taste it. There will be no more night, because the eternal light of the Lamb will fill the new heaven and new earth and shine upon the heirs of God. That's you, and that's me. And that day is fast approaching. But there's still more to be done. So like Joshua, we got to commit ourselves to doing everything that the Lord has asked us to do. We got to step out in faithful obedience and do the obedient thing so that God's blessings can flow unimpeded into our lives. And then you, then I, then we will experience rest. Just like the Israelites did, there is a rest that remains for the people of God. Hebrews 4 talks about it. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. There is a rest that God wants to bring you into. Are you walking in that rest tonight? Are you experiencing it? I, I pray that you are. And if you are not, then let me just finish by extending this invitation to you. These are the words of Jesus. And he said, are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Man, is your soul sapped of its strength? Then come to me, Jesus said, and find rest for your souls. For I'm meek and lowly in heart. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. Just spend time with him. Yoke up with him. 
follow after him, walk in step with him, and your soul will flourish. It will be restored. It will be renewed. It will be like a cup that is just filled to the brim and then runs over because it can't contain all of the contents of what's being poured into it. That's the picture of what God wants for you. If you're not experiencing that right now in this moment tonight, then there is more for you to walk into. And that should be all of us. So I want to close in prayer. Father, I I pray for my brothers and sisters in here this evening. And we thank you that you promised to satisfy the thirsty. In other parts of the word, you say, come unto me if you're thirsty. And in another place, you say, Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white as wool. These three invitations. Come, have your sins dealt with. Come, have your thirst quenched. Come, find rest for your souls. Lord, may each one of us find our way into your presence tonight. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.